This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Um, I'm doing a talk on competition, illusion and excellence, which is quite a lot to cover, but... but uh, You'll see where I'm going, I'm sure. Um, it's just part of what we, you know, we, we talk about when we're talking about big issues, the Lordship of Christ over all of life, which means God, Christ, are not just interested in religious activities, but interested in all of life. And we really try to um, emphasize that here and chase it into wherever it needs to go. Uh, and this would be an example of that. <clears throat> this is not... Um, well, it, it's something that's totally dependent on our theological understanding of things. But it's not something that usually here um, Christian talks about. <clears throat> so, competition is the main theme. Um, it's a certain way people... I've got to get my specs on to get a picture here. Competition is a certain way people can place themselves in comparison to each other. It's not the only way you can place yourself in comparison to other people, but it's one of the ways. Competition reaches into countless areas of life. You know, it's actually hard to find to think of areas of life where competition doesn't get to, in somebody's view of things. Um, it gets into education all over the place, the arts of all sorts, sports of every description, the economy everywhere, media, politics across the board personal relationships in all sorts of ways where it maybe should and shouldn't be. It can get into the family, it can get into the church. Competition is neither good nor bad in itself. <clears throat> Competition is necessary sometimes for some in some contexts. Uh, not necessary, but virtually inevitable in others. Helpful in some areas. Completely unnecessary in others. And very destructive in still others. So I'm covering quite a range of different places where it can happen, and hopefully you'll <clears throat> find that some, some help to get a grip on. <clears throat> it's immensely powerful in, in America today. One scholar, one sociologist writes, we have a staggering cultural obsession with winning, which I'm sure you've all experienced. It's a way of ranking people when you're asking, who is the best one at this? Or, who wins? Or, who is at the top? Or, how do you score yourself compared to others in whatever? It may be a way that you adopt for yourself, into which you put yourself as a competitor in some competitive uh, event or arrangement of things. So you do it yourself, you put yourself, so you're a competitor. It also can be a way in which you find yourself put in a competitive situation by other people, and you might not have wanted that to be the case, but that's there, there it is, and there you are. 
you're being compared to others who are doing what you're doing by a third party or whatever, um, whether you like it or not. It also can be a way in, into which you find yourself putting others, ranking others, for all sorts of reasons, and, and, and with different criteria. Uh, so it can be a way that you evaluate other people in your mind. Uh, as Christians, I'm going to back up and give the biggest theological picture here. Uh, I want to say that most of us, when as Christians, believe that we're equal to each other in our possession of human dignity, in, in, that, we're, in that we're equally the images of God, which um, God has created us all equal because he's created us in God's image. That's why this idea of human equality is absolutely dependent on a personal God seeing us as equal rather than um, just some other way because there's no other way you can say people are equal because in everything you can measure people are not equal to each other in anything you can you can um, uh, observe and measure uh, our abilities our characteristics we're not the same unequal by heredity and environment, by nature and nurture. That is to say, unequal in our DNA and also unequal in our family and society and their influences on us as we grew up. Um, one of the great questions in philosophy and, and political philosophy has always been, how should people with great ranges of difference differences sort themselves to live well, well with each other? people who are different and all sorts of how do you best arrange people so that it works out well and you have to think of what does well mean but that's a huge area of controversy through history a huge area of injustice uh, through history competition is about comparing our differences the full range or extent of competition and its power to influence us is, is much too much for me to tackle uh, because it's just too big uh, but I want to look at some of the areas where we get confused about it and get things mixed up with other things. Um, so I'll try and just focus in on something of a, of a de- definition uh, <clears throat> and, and then go forward. Uh, many people think of first of co- competition in sports because sports are usually intrinsically competitive. You win or you lose, your team wins, your team loses. Uh, and also competitive sports are high, high visibility in our culture, um, in our media world. Winning teams in sports are taken to- so seriously that people break the uh, federal and state laws in, turn, in, in achieving winning status or money off winning whoever you're betting on or whatever. It, it gets enormously complicated. Um, but it's so important that all sorts of cheating occurs to achieve winning. <clears throat> but competition isn't just an issue for competitors themselves, but also for fans. And I'll have a quick thing to read to you here. Um, this is inside the front page of a book that a man's written about competition. But before he gets to the text at all, this is just inside the cover. He says <clears throat> this, <clears throat> Our first child was anxious to be born. My wife's labor increased in frequency and intensity. Obviously, it was time to go to the hospital. I warmed up the car, but had not turned off the TV. Detroit and Montreal were playing hockey. 
Joyce was at the door, beckoning. I turned for one last look. It was late in the third period. The score was tied, and Detroit had a power play. Just one more rush, honey, I said. Just one more rush. She gaped at me, unbelieving. I don't believe it either. Now. <laughs> so, you get, you get the picture. He'd never been in labor. <laughs> no, that's true. Uh, but, but you see the thing of, of the power of being a, a fan of what's a spectator. I remember this, I think when, did I maybe give this example the other night? I think I did. Uh, uh, I think when the Boston won the oh, yeah. Super Bowl, never mind. I won't, won't bore you with that again. The pylon in a, in a Boston bar. Um, there's a famous example also of the president of the University of Oklahoma. I mean, University of Oklahoma is renowned for having a good football team, very good football team sometimes. But he was, he was appearing before the uh, state legislature to appeal for money uh, for, his, for ac- the academic programs of the university. And um, many of the people there only thought of the football team. So he, he has a famous tongue, tongue-in-cheek remark uh, to, this, to the legislature. He says, we'd like to have a university which our football team can be proud of. <laughs> so that sort of echoed down through the, through the decades um, of what, a, what an academic, how, how, how they see things. Uh, but competition has not only critics, but lots and lots of boosters. Ex-President General Ford, who, by the way, played football when he was in college, said, it has been said that we are losing our competitive spirit in this country, the thing that made us great. I don't agree with that. The competitive urge is deep-rooted in American character. In other words, we're not losing it after all. Uh, many people would agree, but the competitive spirit, is the competitive spirit really the thing that made America great? I mean, we could have a discussion on that. I'm not sure at all. I'm not going to stop and have a discussion now because we'll never get through it. But, but, but uh, it's worth thinking about. Is that what made America? Lots of people think it is. Uh, confusion of terms, um, which we hope to clarify. There seems to be a confusion of competition with excellence itself, as if competitive excellence was the only excellence that existed. And also, so that success is always and has to be competitive well, competitive success, but uh, as well with the idea that the only way to motivate people toward excellence is by means of competition, is getting them to compete with each other. Therefore, they will work to achieve excellence. Um, to quote Gerald Ford again, athletics and in most other worthwhile pursuits, first place is the manifestation of the desire to excel. And how else can you achieve anything? Is it not enough to just compete? Or it is not enough to just compete. Winning is very important. What is he saying? He's saying the desire to excel, to be excellent, is the same thing, really, as the desire to be in first place, to beat the others, to win. So excellence is defined, really, as competitive success. And he also is bearing into the assumption that competition is the only reliable source of high motivation. He asked, how else can you achieve anything? I can't imagine how else could you achieve anything apart from competitive winning. Actually, I can believe all kinds of things get you motivated to excellence. Um, if I, I'm going to skip through. If I look confused a little bit, I'm editing out some things. Here, there's a, a piece by a guy, a, a manly Christian, um, who uh, 
um, who says the only way you can really live out the Beatitudes is to be a highly competitive person. A non-competitive person could never have the courage and the security to be a peacemaker, to mourn, uh, to have manly, manly meekness, and to be merciful, pure in heart, and to hunger and thirst for truth. He missed the first and the last of Beatitudes, to be poor in spirit and to be willing to be persecuted. He missed those two. He's got them in the middle, and you need to be, have manly, competitive. Uh, I think it's, uh, I would spend more time ca- taking it apart logically, but what he says is it's just absolutely whacked. And never mind them. No, no, that's not where it's at. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, but, but this is, this is the, that's p- part of a Christian whole mentality uh, that this is this is the real truth. Um, it, get, it would get far more ridiculous than that, even though that's pretty ridiculous. If I laid out his whole argument, um, some clarifications. May be important to, to define competition more precisely. Uh, reality is, in fact, it's a zero-sum relationship. That means what I win, you lose. Uh, what, what you win, I lose. Uh, my success requires your at least relative failure. It's a jargon term. We need a jargon acronym for everything. Otherwise, people will never know that we're experts. Uh, the jargon term is, is mega, not mega, mega. Uh, M-E-G-A stands for Mutually Exclusive Goal Attainment. Got that? So write that down if you're taking notes. Mutually Exclusive Goal Attainment. Um, uh, that means our, faiths, our, our fates are negatively linked. Um, from a Christian stance, we have to hold to some, we have to get a hold of some idea of excellence that somehow is higher than competitive success that has an authority independent of uh, and that stands above uh, competitive success um, to judge whether competitive success in any occasion is actually morally legitimate or morally condemnable. Um, if there's no moral judgment over competition, and if competitive success is the only standard, then the MVP of a football team, most valuable player, could be a linebacker who sacks the, the quarterback and sends him to the hospital. And so he's no longer there in the game. He may contribute literally more to his team winning than anybody else on his team. But is that excellence? I think we need a, a better definition of excellence. We need something that transcends competitive success by a different set of criteria. Same thing would be true in the business world. Um, we'd have to say there's an excellence that that isn't just winning uh, with a lower quality product having annihilated all the all the compet- competition um, and then raising the prices after getting rid of the competition. Uh, to claim that competition is the only reliable means of motivating people is just not true. There are many sources of strong motivation of striving, of drive of zeal, determination of courage that have nothing to do with competition uh, but that lead to very high levels of achievement. Think of the satisfaction of people have in working in a team that's a closely tied together team uh, on a project, whether the project has anything to do with competition or not but you can have a high level of, of commitment uh, to people uh, that people have to, to work this project out. I think of the 
the, the motivation for many people in the sciences of curiosity, of just this incredible hunger to know, what is it? How does it work? How can we understand this? Um, it has nothing to do with competition. It can get competitive, of course. Uh, all sorts of anything can get, get competitive. But, but um, uh, that competition, I'll get that necessary. Competition isn't a negative or isn't a necessary piece of it. So you can have a high level of motivation without competition being the thing that fuels it. The love of excellence itself in any field. I think of the arts, of the love of beauty. Love of beauty in music or visual, visual arts uh, can bring amazing dedication. People, Mrs. Schaefer always used to tell, tell the story of Michelangelo and doing the chapel of the Sistine ceiling. He would work against the advice of everybody. He would work for 70 hours straight without coming off the scaffolding. And they'd drag him down uh, to, to sleep and to eat. And he must have fed him something for up there for 70 hour stretches. <laughs> but but uh, imagine to be just so committed to doing it and getting it right and having it look the way he wants to make it look that he's just oblivious to human survival. Uh, for, uh, thankfully, it's only because he had some good friends that we had the ceiling completed. We had help doing it too, but still. Uh, how many sports have high levels of competition and competitive excellence, but which are enjoyed by vast numbers of people for no competition whatsoever. Because it's the sport is fun to do. Uh, and I really enjoy it. It gets me outdoors, it's good exercise, and it's fun. They provide great enjoyment. And also, in, uh, in many of these sports, skiing, hiking, swimming, bicycling, kayaking, I would add my my idolatrous sport, rowing, uh, running, uh, or, or or playing a musical instrument. People can reach a high level of of um, of excellence without com- competition fueling it. Without competition, um, think of the people who play an instrument really well. Who, that's not it's not a competitive drive to do that. Um, the dangers of competition. We can mistake the importance of competition. Uh, for the reasons I've just said, it's uh, easy, easy to assume that, in a, uh, that a, um, in a competitive environment, like, say, education, you will increase learning and increase productivity in whatever that environment is, because it stimulates motivation to work hard. Uh, many views of education have a lot to do with how competition between students is the thing that uh, the teacher must get going and have alive and keep keep that burning to motivate students to keep studying and keep them working and thinking uh, in the right direction. But there's a lot of other study that shows that it's not that simple. The competition may make teaching easier, but learning less effective. In other words, it can keep the crowd, the crowd control problem. The teacher. Teachers got at least two problems, many more really. Crowd control, in other words, they need to have the students pay attention and being not be uh, throwing things at each other and stuff. But then also to present something that, that can be learned in a way that is able to be learned. And um, learning to beat others and learning to learn the subject are two very different things. They're not just the same. And one doesn't necessarily lead to the other. What a lot of studies have found is that competition makes winners and makes them try harder keep on winning for a while but they get tired of that as a motivation 
because their interest was not in learning. Their interest was in being top, top of the list, number one in the class. Uh, and, and so that, that, that they run out of gas there because that, that gets boring. This compared to educational models which focus much more on cooperation where competition doesn't get in the way and you can together mm-hmm. devote yourself to the, the interest, the excitement, and actually learning something without the distraction of competition as a as a, as a yeah, something that, that draws you away from the actual act of learning. Maybe more important to education is that in a very competitive classroom environment, um, competition can make others who are not winners see themselves as losers, who say, well, why bother in what seems to matter to my teacher? Why bother? And I think this is a huge problem, huge problem, because kids learn real fast that they're not winners. If, if, the, if there's a competitive enough environment that, that sticks the class rank in your face all the time, which some people, you hear the way some people run their classrooms, and it does. The class rank gets sticked in your, stuck in your face again and again and again. Every activity. Who was first? Who had done first? Um, I'll talk, talk later. Competition is impossible to erase, to remove, but it's possible to have a vast range of level which it's emphasized. And it's, it's stuck into the face of the students. I can see where I, my sympathies are really against that. Um, the way the classroom can organize can call attention to it or minimize uh, its significance. Um, some psychologists suggest that passionate competitors do it more out of self-doubt than anything else. So they call competitiveness or high-level competitiveness a deficit-motivated trait. Um, we can have another acronym there. But, but um, because it is as if their own worth depended on being number one. See, now that's you're getting into identity issues which are really significant of how your experience in education can, can dunk your whole sense of identity um, and make it dependent on being something that you're never going to have. They would suggest that it's self-doubt which makes some comparison between oneself and other people in the room. Uh, am I the best-looking person here in this room? Am I the smartest? Am I the best dressed? Am I the most attractive? Am I the most educated? Do I have the best job? Do I have the most uh, politically responsible views? The most whatever. You can, people can go into a room and just survey the room and try and figure out where do they stand on everything. They would, I think, rightly say, that is a deficit-motivated behavior. I think that you've got to be better than someone else to enjoy uh, a room with, you know, with a lot of possibly good, good company. Um, so the, the, the deficit-motivated attitude we take into our social existence. Um, if I had more time, I would have a, a go at the U.S. News and World Report ranking of universities, uh, which I think is just not where it's at. They've been doing it for 37 years, and so many universities and colleges exert, I'll just say a little bit about it, a huge amount of energy and money training people to process all the information about the university and frame it in a way that it will most impress the U.S. News and World Report next year in the next year's report that comes out. An example of this that just drove me whacked is 
this is some years ago, it would have been at least 15 years ago, um, Harvard was number one in the whole in the whole nation as a university. But on teaching, it was number 17. And I thought, what? what? Wasn't education meant to be about teaching? Huh? And you can be sure what they're saying. Well, look at what these guys published. Or look at what they did. Look at all the fancy things they did, the places they, they went, how they went to Paris and Hong Kong in the middle of the terms, lectured and wrote books. But teaching? Anyway. Uh, I think that's unhelpful. And, and I think it's got something to do with the fact that our, our tuitions are obscene. Uh, anyway, I'll leave you to think on that. Um, dangers, these are the, this is the downside of, of competition. The dangers of feeding idolatry. Motivations associated with competition are so powerful and can be powerful in really wrong directions or to wrong degrees. Uh, and, and become uh, something that feeds idolatry. An idol is basically a god substitute, which starts by making all areas of your life, all areas of your life, subservient to that idol, and therefore squeezes the life out of the rest of your life um, because of the sacrifices that the idol demands. Uh, the, the, the guy standing at the door wanting to see uh, the finishing, whether the Detroit uh, Red Wings could, could, could score in their power play while his wife needed to go to the hospital. That's an example of idolatry. Uh, and one of the ways I think you can see the growth of idolatry, the start of it, is that when something, an idol becomes an idol to you, when your allegiance to that makes you disobey God in some other area, makes you scrap the morality that God gives you in some area, out of service to the idol, you will you're willing to scrap. But love is the first thing to go, uh, and and everything else can go too. Uh, but that's a whole other topic. But but uh, it it can competitive success can rank pretty high as an American idol. One of the great idols here, or fa- famous football coaches, was Vince Lombardi. Maybe how many of you heard this? He was a, a while ago. A great um, professional football coach. This a famous quote from him, which I hope wasn't really uh, indicative of his character. Winning isn't everything; it's the only thing. <laughs> to play the game, you must have fire in you, and there needs to. And there's nothing that stokes fire like hate. I will demand a commitment to excellence and to excellence and to victory, <clears throat> and that is what life is all about. This is a violent sport. That's why the crowds love it. Unquote. If you judge only by these words, uh, he's, he's promoted hatred as a means to excellence in the sport, if it, lead, if it leads you to win. So competitive success becomes an idol as it pushes aside everything else that matters that can get in the way of winning. We'll come back to, uh, to this. Okay, then I want to think here about the legitimacy of competition. And here I want to look at three contexts of competition. Where is competition happening and why? Who is it with and about what? That's the first area, the context of competition. Uh, in other words, you're, you're running the Boston Marathon, that's you running against other people and so on. It's 26 million, whatever miles. Um, that's its context. The other 
variable here is the quality of one's competitive motivation, one's attitude toward it. That was how important is is winning to you in this. Uh, that that that's another that's the other variable in terms of what makes it makes getting into competition more uh, uh, redemptive and, and basic and, and positive or or really destructive. Certain things, and, and there's three different kinds of context for competition here. Where competition is, is essential, otherwise you wouldn't have any event at all. Where competition is likely, but not absolutely necessary. And then thirdly, where competition is uh, destructive. Shouldn't happen. Okay? So you know I have a plan here. Uh, uh, what? Where competition is essentially, comp- where excuse me, wh- wh- activities which are essentially competitive. Some activities are competitive situations because they're intrinsically, intrinsically competitive by nature. If, for example, we have a soccer field and a soccer goal here, if we had 22 people at a soccer ball, and all 22 people were trying to kick the soccer ball into the empty, unguided net, that would not uh, be a game. That would not attract crowds. It, no one would go out and bother to do it again. 22 people around a net, around a goal and a soccer ball kicking it into the empty hole. In other words, that's soccer without competition. That means there's no game. Game doesn't happen. Uh, do you see what I'm saying? I'm saying something absurd, but, but I want, that's, what I want, that's the picture I want you to get. Or playing tennis, trying to make the return shot as easy as you possibly can to your opponent in tennis. Or to the other person on the other side of it. It might take a long, long time if, uh, and be very boring. But no one would ever, tennis would never have happened as a sport. So, those are two examples of where the only reason there's anything, if there is a context, there is any event that happens, is because it has a compet- this competitive element to it. Um, so, I want to say com- competition can be dangerous. But it doesn't need to be dangerous. Uh, it depends on your your attitude toward this context where competition is necessary for it to happen at all. Um, but here it depends on what your the quality of your attitude is. It what does it mean to you? You can participate very hard in sports without the beating of the other person being the only thing that motivates you. For many athletes, it's worth competing even if they don't win. And after losing, they do not wish they had never tried. You getting what I'm saying? So losing, the winning, I, I still enjoy it. Still, it's a blast. It's still a good time. Or it was worth it. I've done a lot of competitive sports uh, and done plenty of losing. But I've never regretted trying very hard to win, even though... I was in sports that required year-round training for years and years in a row. Um, one football coach wrote, every time you win, you're reborn. When you lose, you die a little. That is over the top. I'm sorry. Even, uh, even football, that's over the top. Uh, uh, for a sport, that's more than a sport can give or take away from you. Um, it will be harmful, not because of anything to do with football, because of some, but because of somebody's attitude toward it. Uh, you don't die when you lose. You might even, when you lose, learn something. Uh, so a competitive context 
can be necessary for a game to happen, and you can, and you can compete hard without letting the spirit of competition rule you. Most Labrie branches uh, play volleyball when there's enough students around to do it, um, or the, when the right season of the year. So sorry about it for you all uh, for for being here in the winter. But but um, it's really it's really a good occasion because people have a lot of fun, but it isn't the huge deal to have to win. You have to try to win. If you just let the ball drop on the ground, then there's no game. If you don't even try to get it up, try to get it or put it on the other side, it's not even a game. So you have to try to win, but yet it's no big deal if you lose. And usually people change sides and mix sides up or whatever. Um, no one loses sleep over losing um, these games. Not that, that that's obviously just a very fun sort of thing rather than uh, taking sports more seriously. Um, I think I think sports uh, for many people can be very helpful. Not only good exercise, but also good learning experience of cooperation, of teamwork. When our each of our three sons started playing youth soccer when they were I don't know not very big, but I would ask them at the end of each time when they first went out, what position did you play? Right swarm or left swarm or center swarm? <laughs> Because you watch these kids who start out playing soccer, and they're in, they run in a swarm following the ball. And, but that, that doesn't last very long. It doesn't. It really doesn't. They learn what positions mean and how playing positions really helps you do the game. Uh, and they get excited because I'm in this position. I'm playing on the wing or whatever. Um, so it, so it's a, that, that's a, a, a kind of learning that happens as old as we get any, with any sport we pick up and start on. Um, Stuart Udall, who used to be Secretary of Interior, um, played college basketball and he said um, he hated the, the win or perish attitude to sports, which he said felt corrupted many people. I'm quite certain that the most vital gift I took away from experiences in college, college athletics was the lesson of learning how to lose with a semblance of grace. Um, and, and I think that's true. Of course, the structural issues today are enormously complicated with, uh, with the organization of sports at a high level, um, shaping the way the games are played and shaping where winning is everything, but television rights and there's gazillions of dollars riding on things. Um, and, and, and Olympics allowing professional athletes and the, all, all sorts of things are mixed up to... to to, to make it more difficult to to um, to not get mixed up in the wrong kind of competition, whether it's to do with with money or with um, just ridiculous levels of publicity, which also mean money. Um, so okay, that, that's something that with, with things that are inevitably competitive. The second category, second context is when when things are often competitive, or likely to be competitive, but not intrinsically competitive. I wanted to, I want to argue that education is not intrinsically competitive. Uh, most working environments are not intrinsically competitive. Even business, uh, uh, corporate world, working environments are not intrinsically competitive in the same sense as a, as a game of soccer. Are very likely to be competitive simply because we live 
in a finite world with limited resources and opportunities. So a lot of competition that comes on us in all sorts of reasons, for all sorts of reasons, is because the world is finite, the resources are finite, the number of opportunities are finite for all kinds of activities that we might like to do. Um, of course, there's intense economic competition, but it's not as if there just was a certain pie and it was a question of who got a piece of that pie. Um, a bigger percentage as if it was a zero-sum uh, activity. In fact, the pie is not static. One of the positive things about, I think, American and certainly European and world history uh, is, is that the, the pie can become the economic pie can become much bigger with many more players in the game and with freedom of, uh, of, of a free market to, to enable economic growth to happen. So the focus isn't only on competi- competition as if it's a race. It is competitive, but there's a lot of other things to do other than compete with our competition. Um, I think we all drive, and I think that the society itself uh, gains from co- competition within in the corporate world. Uh, any of you who drive an American car, that's a better car than it would have been had we not imported Japanese and, and German cars in the 1960s and following. The, Jap- the, the American car that you, you own is a better car, works better, drives better, uh, than if you drive a German or Japanese car like we do, doesn't won't make any difference because... Where we didn't, we bought some American cars too, but but, but uh, they're all they're all better for the competition as a result of the competition. Uh, I've noticed also how competitors don't necessarily work in competition against each other. You look at see if you've noticed this too. If you look at McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's, um, very often these fast food restaurants camp out on different corners of the same blasted in- intersection. <laughs> or close together on the same street. This cannot be an accident. They are too sharp in terms of their marketing and their knowing what, where we get our nickel and where we don't. But obviously they all make more money if together they create the public consciousness of a junk food mecca here on this street corner. Uh, and they all do better. And so this is their competitors, but hey, there's a way they can work together and they all do better. It's just that I'm saying that, that economic competition in the, in, the, in the corporate world isn't just as simple isn't just as comp- competitive alone. There's other all sorts of things uh, going on. Roscoe might be able to get us help us out on how that works better. Having spent more time than the rest of us in the in the corporate world, um, our version of free market capitalism has all sorts of problems connected with it. No question. All sorts of injustice attached to it. But so do its alternatives. I remember a friend of mine describing stay in Moscow. This was before 1989 when the USSR was still the USSR. Uh, a Russian friend took him out for one of the better, to one of the best, better restaurants in Moscow. They had to wait for an hour on the sidewalk outside the restaurant. They weren't allowed in uh, to get in. When they finally got in, they saw 20 tables and two tables were used, two of the 20 were used to serve people. Uh, and the others were empty, which is table sitting there empty with the chairs there and they asked the waiter why why aren't you serving women you got these people on the street they said I mean, he always remembered 
They only pay us enough to do two tables, so that's why we do no more. They pay us for that. that that's what we'll do. Will we do any more of that? No. Why should we do any more than that? That's what they pay us. Um, this is the danger of a centralized economy, which doesn't allow the freedom between and the, and the causal relationship between what you effort, what effort you expend, and what you take home to live on. Um, making your efforts to supplying your own livelihood, which then, then makes competition possible. I remember a friend of mine did a study of jokes inside the USSR. This is pre-1989 Russia. Um, one of the jokes, standing jokes, which they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. But that's what you can have in a, in a, in a centralized economy uh, where, where there's no freedom, there's no possibility of competition uh, because competition is seen as, as a great evil uh, uh, that, that must be stamped out. Education would be impossible to revise the structure of education enough to eliminate it, eliminate competition completely, simply because of what I said, there's resources are finite, possibilities are finite in our world. If a school puts on a play, some students will get the parts they want and others will not get the parts that they wanted and will be disappointed, maybe very disappointed, for not getting the parts that they wanted. Because of that, is it better to have no play at all? Because it causes disappointment? Uh, or eliminate sports teams altogether because the difference in students' abilities will make some dis- disappointed more than others. Is it better to eliminate sports? Uh, I don't think so, for some of the reasons that I've, that I've just said. Um, but there's a way that we can either emphasize or, or minimize the ranking and certainly the value we put on people according to their rank. Uh, in the way education works. Uh, that's, that's so very important. Okay, the third section here is what is inappropriate competition? Our personal relationships don't need to be competitive and the spirit of competition is liable to, to spoil or degrade, damage a lot of our relationships. Unless that competition is in a context that requires it or it's taken lightly um, I'm thinking of family, church and neighborhood the family is a place where there's a huge need for mutual support huge need for mutual support it's not the best place for adversaries under the same roof think of how husband and wife can compete with each other in marriage. I'm going to give you a few examples of, 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 of competitive questions, all of which I've heard from having done a fair amount of marriage counseling. Think of the zero-sum arrangements between husband and wife. Who contributes more to this relationship, you or me? Which one of us suffers more at the hand of the other, you or me? Who is the better parent? Who is the better lover? Who does our child love more? Who earns more money? Every one of these questions, the last one is, could be very not a serious thing, or, or it could be a very serious, a destructive one. But every one of these questions leads the relationship very fast in the wrong direction, not where it needs to go. 
Um, sibling rivalry, a certain amount of sibling conflict is inevitable, especially when siblings are young, and we found uh, very well with our three sons, especially when they're bored. Uh, <laughs> because you're bored on a long trip or something, and what do we got to do but bash somebody next to us? And, and, and uh, whatever. Uh, but children are so different, uh, and, and yet it's, it, it's, it's something to be expected, but, but to be leaned against. Parents' commitment needs to be to help their, their children outgrow this and, and, to, and to lead them toward mutual respect and support. Uh, not easy because kids are different from each other. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who was the head rabbi of England, wrote written some fascinating things. Wrote a book called Not in God's Name, and he show, in it he shows most one of the main themes in the book is to show the whole book of Genesis as a record of sibling rivalry of the the the, the sons of the the patriarchs. He starts, of course, with a great example of Cain and Abel. He goes through the whole book of Genesis, finding reconciliation only in chapters 49 and 50 with the 12 sons of Israel getting some kind of a semi-peaceful uh, cooperation. Of course, the, aggrava- the, 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 the problem is aggravated by polygamy throughout um, and so on. It's, but there's all kinds of settings you see where, where competition is corrosive. I was just hit by you. Some of us have heard of this guy, Paul Farmer, this famous physician. Uh, who, who had done an enormous amount to to extend the highest medical care to poor people of the world. And his organization that he started, one of the many organizations he started, is called Partners in Health. And I heard, because he just died two weeks ago, I heard one of his speeches. And he invade against competition within the medical world. And how destructive, what an absolute waste of time and energy it is, and how much, what, what a waste it is, and how it prevents us getting out getting medicine where it's meant to go and where the individual doctors want it to go and nurses want it to go, but how competition is just a break on the whole thing. Um, and, and, uh, but again, partners in health, that was what he named his organization. Um, the church is not, it's hard to think of a place where competition is, except for fun things like playing volleyball and stuff like this, that's fine. It, it, where, where competition is a helpful thing. What is the main metaphor for the church? It's the body of Christ. Uh, how much do you need competition between the members of your body? Uh, well, you know, competition between the members of your body is basically a seizure. You know, it's not a good idea. Seizures are not good things to, to mess with. Um, our limbs and organs working against each other or your just irrespective of each other. Um, uh, certainly, there's, there's a finite number of church offices. There's a finite number of people that hold those offices. Different tasks and so on need to be done. But the whole deal is that you have these gifts. I mean, you can see this coming out all over the place in Paul's theology. What are these gifts for? They're for, for the growth of the church. Your gifts, your individual gifts that you worked on. <laughs> You studied behind, you developed, you could help on, and so on. They're not for you to uh, stand on a, on, on a pedestal. They're for you to contribute to the church, to make the church grow. Uh, see the whole body working well 
as as a body. Paul's passionately committed to just read so many of his letters are are, are getting this thing called the body of Christ to work with this these stubborn bunch of people with all these prejudices and competition between them. Um, and I I follow Paul. I follow Apollos, but I was baptized by Cephas. And, and Paul said, you're totally missing the point. This is the Corinthians and 1 Corinthians. Um, uh, love is the order of the body of Christ. It makes it work. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. That puts severe limits on the competitive spirit. You know? it, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Those are just three of the things that love does. Uh, in, in the middle paragraph of First Corinthians 13. Um, my, my favorite verse, really, and pitting this against um, the, the life of the church against competition is Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is a total reversal of the, the common competitive response. When someone has success, it may make us look bad. They succeed, but they did all sorts of stuff right that I haven't done. Well, so it make me look really bad. Um, if someone screws up and they weep and they weep, it make me look. Make, I, I did that. I, I succeeded at that. I'm okay. It make 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 me sit up and sit up straighter. But that's completely twisted. That's so totally bent. It has nothing to do with love and the empathy that he's lifting up in here. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those. Who weep? It's a tremendous um, command, a double command uh, that stands against, totally stands against our pride, totally stands against what comes most naturally to us and easily to us. Um, he hits head on, uh, defying what competition can do to us. Um, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And it doesn't mean just in our physical appearance, while inwardly we grind our teeth or do, do the opposite. Um, the last thing I want to talk about here is, is okay, what is a higher standard of excellence than competitive success? Because <clears throat> um, I don't want to just knock. I think it's important what I've been saying about the right setting and, and attitude to competition. But it's we, we don't just have a... a um, have that without another whole framework of valuing to, to think about and to live under. Uh, not dealing just with competitive context, but with the quality of competitive motivation um, and, and w- which, which really focuses in intriguing ways. Um, C.S. Lewis calls competition, or rather calls pride, the great sin. Uh, not competition, but pride. And so he, what he's doing here, I'll read you a paragraph out of Mere Christianity, <clears throat> but he's, what he's arguing against is when um, the pride is inherently competitive, but he's not saying that competition is always pride or com- competition is always sin. The reason I said, You may remember when I was talking about sexual morality, I warned you that the center of Christian morals did not lie there. Well, now we have come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. Love that. Hmm. Well, 
Uh, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. The point is that each person's pride is in competition with every other person's pride. Pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. Well, other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. So he's separated competition itself and pride. Uh, he's not saying that competition is always or is the same thing as pride, but that all pride is competitive. So competitive competition can easily fit right into the agenda of pride. If we allow our value to be built around ourselves rather than around God, then we're right there. Pride can dominate our life, life's meaning by making us use the differences between us and each other uh, to give us security in our own superiorities. Lewis attacks pride because it uses competition to corrupt our deepest attitudes and commitments. He goes on to say, which intrigues me, that the devil is pleased if he can help us um, stop our addiction to alcohol if he can make us proud of doing it. You see it? We think, oh, it's a great work of God to make us, to enable us to stop being an alcoholic. Wow, great. What else have we got? Uh, he says, no, you've just begun. <laughs> the battle, the real battle is you could be proud of doing it and look down on all sorts of people who weren't able to do it. And you could be a menace as a result of having quit your alcoholism. Um, anyway, uh, but it, there's something very shrewd and deeply biblical in this, I think. Um, so what competition can offer us is going to be dangerous because it has what I would call sympathetic vibrations with pride. By that I mean what I can't forget what they taught us in the army when you are marching across a bridge, a group of soldiers marching across a bridge, break step. Don't mark, march in step across a bridge because by staying in step you can set up a vibration which can mac, match the, 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 the vertical vibrations of the bridge and bridges have collapsed dumping everybody into the drink um, with soldiers grouping, with a group of soldiers marking, marching across, uh, without breaking, in, the, keeping in step. You see what I'm saying? And, and the bridge can be going like this. And anyway, that wasn't we were weren't terribly afraid of that when I was in the army. But anyway, I remember them teaching it because it seemed so totally non-intuitive to me. But but that's what I mean by a sympathetic vibration. Pride and, and competition can have a sympathetic vibration with each other. Uh, and so you need to be careful of it. You need to watch for it. Uh, that's why competition is dangerous if it is untethered and not tied on something of a short leash. So when we're in competitive events or activities, we need to watch out. We need to be aware of what, what, what the competition can, that it can get us into pride, uh, even though we don't want to and it can, and su- as such, be soul destroying. So we need to do, we need to break step when we're in competitive situations and be attuned to, to to their danger. We also need to look at, at the positive alternative to competition that the Christian faith gives us to build our life on. Our final audience, and here I want to just have a word about excellence. I find I want to, I want to talk about this a lot today. Um, our final audience and final allegiance is to God himself created us, who knows us, and what is for our own good. 
truth his truth maintains the short leash on competition warning us uh, that we're not always very good at knowing what is most valuable in God's sight I think here of Jesus teaching that many who are first will be last and the last will be first Mark 10.31 that means that our standard accepted human scorecards of human value let's say Fortune Magazine Sports Illustrated um, whatever the big big uh, chroniclers of, of competitive success are God is saying are likely to be completely wrong about who matters and who is successful at the end of the day they, what they've concluded is liable to be completely upside down compared to what actually matters one day when the truth is revealed. Um, he has no cosmic equivalent to the U.S. News and World Report evaluation of, uh, of us. Um, we're given an amazing goal in life to live, to be able to live out something of the glory of God himself. This has nothing to do with competitive success. This has everything to do with becoming like Jesus ourselves as we live, having been accepted by grace, adopted by the Father into his family. Uh, our competitive culture likes to talk about greatness whenever it is possible. There's vast amounts of money in it. There's publicity, there's celebrity in it. And with the celebrity, there's money to go with it. Um, interestingly, Jesus liked to talk about greatness too. Uh, several times when the disciples argued about who was going to be great and who wasn't, arguing among themselves. They were competing for the greatest place. On one occasion, James and John's mother uh, even get into the action, uh, trying to get the most important seats for, their, for her two sons uh, in the kingdom of heaven, knowing that the, the, the seats are scarce there and she wants the best seats right on the side, on either side of Jesus for them. That raises a thorny question about parents pushing for the competitive success of their children, which I will not get into tonight. Uh, but, but it seemed to revive, this seemed to revive their arguments about greatness and they were all angry with James and John. Uh, it's intriguing to me that Jesus, I mean, it's just tragic to me, it, this discussion came right up after Jesus announced he was going to be crucified. You'd think that they would say, "What? How do you mean? You can't do it, whatever." Um, but but that, that that led to this discussion: who's going to be the greatest? They they completely missed the point, uh, and and, and uh, didn't understand it. But Jesus didn't land on them for 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 trying to be great. He didn't he didn't rebuke them, which to me is intriguing. Um, he encouraged them, in fact, to pursue greatness. And he engaged them in talking about it. He said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it's not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. You see what he did? He didn't squash discussion of greatness. He encouraged, let's talk about greatness. You've raised greatness? Yes, I want to talk about that. But he completely inverted their definition of what is great. He used that to completely turn it upside down, or right side up. Uh, and, and it had been with their pride, uh, with all its competitive destructiveness, 
uh, setting people against God and against each other. But Jesus' greatness is here in this occasion. It's a life of service. He gives one of the key passages in the New Testament about the imitation of Christ. Uh, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. This is greatness. In, in, in Jesus' life, you see human excellence, uh, which means you see glory. Life lived as it's meant to be. One of our sort of cliches around Libri is that each person is a, is a glorious ruin. We're glorious because we're made in the image of God. We have potential to, to, to live out and reflect and imbibe and embody the glory of God in very limited ways, but really in true ways. But we're a ruin because we're fallen. We're, 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 we have these two things going on as a battle within us all, at all times, and we have to live with them. We have to, have to somehow um, make life work. work. Our efforts will be um, very imperfect, but we can grow in glory. The New Testament points to six, and I'm here, I'm going to be super brief, but, but uh, this is really important, I think. The New Testament points to six main virtues that we're meant to imitate in Christ. Now, if you don't, imitation of Christ mean, doesn't mean you wear sandals, or, uh, or, or that you don't own a house, or that, uh, as one of my people at church in London said, Jesus is my hero. I said, I talk a lot about heroism. So I said, great. What, for what reason? He said, because he kicked, he kicked the rat race and he didn't have a job. <laughs> so he was unemployed. So he's heroic because he was unemployed. Well, that, that's not the way it goes. It's not, you're not just left to think of anything you can think of with Jesus and imitate that. There are six things that he teaches, or that the New Testament teaches, um, at least. You could spin them a little bit differently. But they were meant to do because Jesus did them. We do them as Jesus did them to us. Do this to each other. They are humility, love, service, forgiveness, willingness to suffer unjustly, and courage. These are human excellence that we can see in the light. In the life. And we mustn't just take these as virtues. And say, oh, I've got to do this. We need to look at them in the life of Christ. We've got to look at them in, in narrative form so they can get, get it at our imaginations and, and, and work in us. Paul, in writing about glory of following Jesus, wrote, and all of us with unveiled face, faces seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, the Spirit. So we can be transformed into one level of glory to another. In this life, he's talking about this life, uh, not just glory eventually when we go to be with the Lord. Um, means we can we can grow in our ability to imitate Jesus himself. Uh, that, to me, is something to live for. That, to me, is a, is a huge imaginative target. That, to me, is what is real heroism. And what what values that we must use to relativize the values of competition and, and to to keep them in their place. So what I've tried to do, sorry, wants so long, but I, I try to do is to clarify some of the illusions about competition um, and the extraordinary grip it has on us. Uh, because I think our, I didn't get at, but our, for many in our culture, Competitive success is one of the few serious adventures in life. In other words, it may be the biggest story they can think of, the most important story that, that comes to them, which is a tragic thing. Uh, in this finite world, for the Christian, cooperation is the major theme. Competition is the minor theme. 
because the overarching shape of reality is relational and interpersonal rather than individual standing up, standing alone. Uh, service is not just service, but service to the common good. Um, and so in this world, Jesus points us to not um, not just stop doing anything to do with competition, but having a positive notion of excellence that stands over it and that judges it. So I'll stop there. Um, sorry to go wandering on for so long, but um, throw it open for a little bit. I don't want to keep you up too late, but throw it open for anything that you want to kick in or take out or whatever, um, or any questions or anything you have with respect to it. Yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, I just came to mind as you were talking about, yeah, composition, and uh, I was thinking about 1 Corinthians 9, where it's under the chapter where the Paul says, do not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. Yeah. So run that you may obtain it, every athlete, athlete uh, exercises self-control in all things. Uh, and he goes on. But I'm just wondering if you know why he is, is referring to a competitive sport when he's talking about discipline and attaining a goal. And specifically, it seems like he's specifically referencing competition by saying, if you don't know that all runners run, only one gets the prize or gets first place. Uh, and so I'm just, it seems so counter to what he's about to say. And, yeah, I, I, I don't think so, actually, but because I think what he's saying is look at <clears throat> dedication, and it's a great example of self-control, mm-hmm. and look at dedication. Look at a competitive runner, and you better believe they're focused. Mm-hmm. They're focused on what they're doing, and, and it's winning. It's all about winning, and so he's saying... This is you need to be like that. Not that the target of Paul is competitive. Right. Uh, no, but take what what someone can do for some for just a wreath that they're going to put on their head for yeah, yeah. a little bit. It's going to go going to going to fade and rot uh, in in no time, and it's worth so little ultimately um, and publicity. Uh, but but look at them as good examples for focus of attention. And and I think it's the interesting thing there is that. That it's self-controlled, very, very focused. That's from within the self. It's it's not them in competitive sports for most people anyway, not everybody. But but it's it's from within yourself. It's not because someone forces you to do it or teaches you to be disciplined or whatever mm-hmm. enough to do it. It's something you learn to love, learn to, and, and get into it yourself. Otherwise, very few people can uh, can can get very far in sports unless they. Taking it themselves, so I think he's taking a highly competitive thing to illustrate the, the zeal you should have right. to to succeed at something that's not competitive. You're not, you don't knock anybody out uh, yeah, uh, yeah. of the place when you do what he tells you to do in terms of honoring God, uh, mm-hmm. whether it be loving or being serving or any of the things about the imitation of Christ that he's that he's talking about. Um, like he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, saying. Look at me. I mean, if I have been successful, watch it. Treat me as a visual aid. But you're not. You're not pushing me out by you achieving Christlikeness. Right, right. You're, yeah. you're, you're not minimizing my success because you've because you you've gotten maybe well ahead of me. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, so, so I think he's, he's getting this at the at, at the. Focus and discipline rather than like a, 
the way to think about discipline. Yeah, that's yeah. not what it's saying. It, it, it says, I think it's as, as it is today. It was then to be to be the, the uh, one of the first things you think of when you think of discipline to achieve something. Yeah. Well, who who is obvious, very visible discipline? Exerting discipline, it's, it's someone who trains for something. You look at people training for the Boston Marathon. Whoa! They, yeah. uh, the time they spent. But 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 uh, his success, his his um, wreath, is, is not the slightest bit um, competitive. Right. Uh, what you do is not in any sense a zero sum uh, uh, competition. But it's the more the better. The more people. And the farther we can get, the closer we can get to Christ, the better, and 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 that will, be, by definition, will benefit everybody, because uh, because our, our gifts will be shared, and our gifts will be, uh, our, our our money will be shared, or whatever else we've got will be shared if we if we live out the way he told him. But that, I'm glad you raised that because that's an intriguing uh, thing. He's not telling us all to be competitive athletes. Right. He's telling us, look, look at competitive athletes and see what they do and notice what they do yeah, yeah. Uh, for for a, a goal that has nothing to do with zero-sum achievement. Okay. Anyway, yeah, yeah that, that, that's a good that really helps. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I always find that puzzling, thinking about it, like yeah. the individualistic mindset that that seems to yeah. give about yeah. that, but um, thinking about it being like a, like a honing in on zeal and discipline. Yeah, and focus. Yeah. Focus and not doing other things because you're wanting to do this. Uh, anyone training for running is going to not spend time not doing the things that his friends are doing or her friends are doing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, any other things we want to, or kick that around? Mm-hmm. I, um, so I, from, I remember from college years ago um, in one of my courses, which was on, on sports um, and the development of leisure and, and so forth. And this is re- re- reaching way back, so if there are linguists in the room, like to correct me, go ahead, whoever they are, not me. But um, you look at the word competition, which uh, I believe comes from the ancient Greek and when we, uh, with the development of the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And that word is um, sort of calm and uh, Petra, which is also this kind of root of rock as well. And originally that word meant this idea of co- like coming together, two or more people coming together to bring out the rock, to bring out the strength huh. from one another, which I love. Isn't that interesting? And like, whether that, I, I think that, I'm pretty sure that was, because I've thought about it so much since then in my dabbling with uh, competitive mainly solo competitive against myself mm-hmm. um, throughout the years. But I appreciate what you brought, Dick, as, as language is alive and continues to mm-hmm. evolve. And obviously having knowing where a word comes from doesn't mean that that informs how we interact with it today. Mm-hmm. And so the context, I think, of... Um, reframing competition again around this idea of a zero-sum game and um, and its place in church and, and Christianity is beautiful. But I, I also offer that as we're continuing to think about it. Like, So I often feel like competition has nothing to do with winning, because, partly because of that. 
that's been yeah. a large part of my story throughout the, you know, and um, I push, I'm really glad my professor, that was a gift to me, because for the past however many years, I have felt like competition, it's like progress, you know, 727, like as iron sharpens iron, so yeah. man sharpens his friend. So that, to me, that's what competition can be. That's the invitation of competition. Yeah. And when we get skewed into this focus on winning dominion over someone, yep. then that's when all of these other, um, you know, dangers come in. Yeah. That's great. That, that's interesting. I had, not, I had not heard that at all. Was, uh, because because uh, that's what competition ought to be. I mean, that, that that's you, you described a redemptive kind of competition in, in that that's without the the, the pride, the, the <clears throat> a, a pride-free uh, approach to competition, which is really difficult. I mean, it's very hard, but, but uh, it's it's a wonderful thing to think about. But it's wonderful to think that it isn't. Um, Intrinsically, kind of a dog eat dog kind of a thing, um, and, and that because if you're just dealing with the competitive in, in the in the modern in the bad sense, um, if you trip someone up in order for you to win the race, you win the race. Hey, but you don't win only because you trip somebody else else up, not because you ran faster. You know, and and, and there's a way in which I mean I. I that, that the, the real ugliness comes out if you you know it, sometimes and and probably more in violent sports in places like in, in football and so on are really hurting each other because they, people try or or I think the wonderful the way of the horrendous story of the, the the woman who was a skater several years ago whose whose co- co- competitor smashed her had someone smash her knee or yes, someone yeah. I forget who oh, yeah. yeah yeah that yeah yeah. I mean, I mean, there, there's competition for you. Um, what a, what a horrendous perversion of. This was at the Olympics too, wasn't it? Well, yeah, I was coming up to it. Nancy Kerrigan, I think she ended up winning later, years later. But huh. who was the woman that was? One, or she was, she's tried to be attacked. But yes, I see. Huh. Very high level. Yeah, but it's it's uh, so sad. But where? Human and we're glorious ruins, and so we 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 are always still a ruin, and uh, we need to keep keep that in our memory. Yeah. I'm just thinking about most um, challenge for parents and teachers to communicate to children that they are their unique value gives and so on, so that they're you know, against the idea of, of ranking, but mm-hmm. that, that there, can, there can be such a, such a freedom to have a grip on, you know, not me, me as an individual. I'm not the best at this, this, and this. You know. I'm pretty good at this. Well, this is something I really love, and I think I should try to work and get better at it. But, but, but to help children realize their value is, is not dependent on being the best, on being number one. Um, their value is rock solid in in God and in Christ ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And and so I mean, I remember um, just hearing something recently about it was in a, it was in a Tim Keller thing. I can't remember what, what it was about, but but he was talking about you know the, the competition say to get into medical school and people somebody who just get I really want God really wants me to be a doctor. He really wants me to get into medical school. Well, I I may have to cheat a little bit. 
to, to do well on this exam. And I'm just, again, saying that's just such a misunderstanding. If, if God went to medical school, you'll, you, you'll get there, you'll get in by not cheating. And if you, and if you blow it, it's not the end of the world. If you don't, if you don't get a great grade, great under MCATs or whatever, or your L stats or <laughs> get into law school, whatever, um, just the freedom to think I'm, I am God's person. I mean, he has made me as a unique individual and he has something for me. And it's not, it's, you know, there's something really skewed if I feel I have to, I have to cheat, cut corners, do something. I remember hearing one of my college roommates who I was very close to, she actually came to Swiss Degree and became a Christian there when, when I was a young Christian as well. Um, her sister was at law school back in the day when there were almost no women in law school. She was at UPenn. There were almost no women in law school. And she could not leave, if she went to the ladies' room, she couldn't leave her books and papers on, on, the, on a library desk because there were men who would, she was a very good student, who would just come sabotage her. They basically trying to sabotage her work. So they would just um, steal all her papers and her books um, and uh, just to try to knock her down. And her class rank. Class rank. It's absolutely yeah. Uh, yeah. central. Whoa. And you know, they didn't want her there anyway. They didn't want a woman there. But she was very smart and doing very Especially well. Especially top of the class. Especially <coughs> didn't, want, didn't want her because she was about this But just to work in to work in an environment like that. And I don't think that's unique. And it's not only you know she was she, she was unusual. She was unusual at the time. She, there were so few women at law school. But um, just to think of how horrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, and the opposite of, of <coughs> rejoicing with those who, you know, who rejoice and weeping with those who do. I mean, being able to be pleased for her that she done that well. Yeah. We, I, got to talk about Libri volleyball again. Um, <laughs> I, a thing that's always pleased me is we have volleyball games out here, and at various whatever age our kids are, they are invited in by students to play volleyball too. And they're like, like Jacob and, Jacob and, 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 and Noah play volleyball. Well, they're not really very good. But yet, what happens again and again with the students who are here, they're treated with total kindness. Mm-hmm. And they come up closer, to, if you're going to be serving, you come up closer to the net and you get two or three tries rather than, you know, uh, Truth he tries to other students, you know, <laughs> but but but, but uh, there there this approval and encouragement everywhere. So that's just you know we don't tell our students to treat our kids you know this way or that way, but but uh, it's great to see, and and that's important because that means they muff it and miss the ball totally uh, or whatever. But that's all right, you know. Here you go next time, and 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 uh, that's. That is, things are communicated with that, uh, that, that, that lean, lean against the, you are valuable only when you win. You're valuable only when you exceed uh, others, when you're especially good and, and people can praise you for being good at this or that, the other thing. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a hugely important valuation thing that I think we can be aware of. 
think probably one of the most destructive things, and I hope it's not happened to any of you, is for parents to have favorite children, for parents to communicate somehow that you think of one of their kids' is favorite. You know, write their kids in their family or just what a horrendous thing for a child from the time they're you know in a family where they should be be, be nurtured and praised and enjoyed and delighted in for, for who they are to feel right with their siblings and not just it's got to be one of the worst the worst absolute worst places for competition or for or for parents like Jacob and Sarah. Pardon? Jacob and Sarah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so many. <laughs> the whole the book of Genesis. I mean, it was, yeah. there's so little good parenting. And, uh, really sad. Uh, any other things we'd like to kick around here? Because it gets into all sorts of areas. Well, thank you for your patience and your endurance here and staying awake. So uh, we'll end it there. <laughs> thank you. We got here a while ago, and somehow we turned the recording button on. We thought, what are we doing? So we never had a recording. I think it's a little thing hanging there, so it's like a little side for it. Yeah. Well, Joshua himself turned it on. <laughs> <laughs> it was different for the doctor. <laughs